Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this podcast, I visit with Andrew Beto. Andrew is a partner at Stein and Mitchell in Washington, D.C., and we discuss the firm's recent Federal Claims Act settlement with Walgreen on behalf of their client, Mark Baker. Walgreens agreed to pay $60 million to settle allegations that it knowingly overcharged government health care plans such as Medicaid for prescription drugs. With this settlement, Walgreens resolved allegations that the company defrauded the U.S. government in 39 states by submitting false and inflated prescription drug submissions. It's a fascinating exploration of a major FCA case, and I know you will find it interesting. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. Today, I have with me Andrew Beato. I hope I got that right. Uh, He is an attorney practicing at Stein Mitchell in Washington. First of all, Andrew, uh, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. It's a real pleasure to be with you today, Tom. Thank you for having me. Andrew, you uh, practice in um, uh, FCPA, uh, FCPA, I'm sorry. I'm an FCPA guy. FCA, KETAM, and whistleblower uh, lawsuits. But I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit more about your practice. Be happy to do that. Uh, so uh, my practice is to represent whistleblowers in matters before a variety of uh, agencies, administrative agencies, uh, as well as in litigation. Um, so we have uh, cases that involve various different federal agencies, such as uh, Food and Drug Administration, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, IRS. All of those agencies, particularly the last two, have their own specific dedicated whistleblower programs. Um, And so as as a baseline, I represent individuals who are typically within a corporation, uh, frequently at the higher level of the corporation, who have specific information of some wrongdoing uh, that affects a federal program or a state program, uh, and they want to convey that information to a responsible government official to get it to stop. And that often results in litigation, which uh, unfortunately, if it does go in that direction, uh, you are then allowed to file a lawsuit on behalf of a whistleblower uh, directly in a federal court under a very unique law called the False Claims Act. So I've heard uh, the whistleblower provision of the FCPA, I'm sorry, FCA, um, as uh, described as a private-public partnership to prevent government fraud, waste, and abuse. Is is that a fair statement? 
It absolutely is. It's a it's a very unique law. And if you just give me a minute, I'll try to explain the origin of it and why it is a great representation of ways in which uh, there is this private and public partnership. So the origin of this unique law, in fact, is the Civil War, um, because after the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction, there was a tremendous amount of war profiteering that was occurring. Um, and there are famous cases in which they talk about the government buying um, sugar for reconstruction purposes to distribute. And in fact, the, the contractor involved there gave them uh, sand. Uh, or uh, in one case, they talk about the government buying, quote, sound horses and mules for purposes of reconstruction. And uh, the government got uh, dying donkeys. So it was a law that was born out of a basic problem, which is when a contractor wishes to do business with the government, um, it has to turn square corners. Uh, and you can't engage in fraud or waste or abuse in a way that takes advantage of uh, that privilege you have to do business with the government. Um, and so the FCA was kind of born out of that. It is, in effect, a a private-public partnership because at its base, this law allows for individual uh, whistleblowers to initiate a case. Um, and when they initiate it, the government then can uh, and is statutorily required to conduct an investigation, and it has the opportunity to uh, intervene in the case after that investigation is completed um, to hold the underlying contractor uh, accountable uh, for whatever fraud or fraud scheme uh, that was uncovered. Um, now, there's at the base of it, it is a uh, it's an incentivized reward program because uh, under the law. If your case results in a recovery for the government, uh, this is a treble damage statute. And so um, if, if uh, the case is successful, the government can recover up to three times the amount of the underlying fraud. And more, most importantly for the whistleblowers that uh, are willing to, to take on these types of matters, including the professional repercussions that frequently flow out of that, um, they are entitled to a percentage of that recovery by the government. And so depending upon the stage of the case and whether it's in litigation or not, uh, that whistleblower can receive up to 30 percent uh, of what the government gets back uh, from the uh, defrauding company. So you recently were involved in a case involving a whistleblower and Walgreens. I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about the background facts of the case, uh, how you brought it or how you positioned it, and then uh, the results. Right. So uh, my uh, among my uh, great honors in the 25 years in the practice of law has been uh, the representation of Mark Baker. And Mark is a, uh, was a pharmacy manager at Walgreens uh, in uh, Florida. Uh, and he was working there for about a decade. 
and he was concerned with certain practices uh, that he was observing personally um, at his particular location. And one of those issues that he ultimately came to my law firm and asked for help on uh, was uh, a concern that uh, there was uh, what I'll call inducements, um, which are essentially some type of financial incentive that is given to uh, a federal or a state beneficiary um, in order to make their prescription transaction at Walgreens. And under uh, the, the broad whistleblower laws, including not just the False Claims Act, but a very uh, kindred federal statute called the Anti-Kickback Statute, uh, that type of conduct is not permitted. And so that was one area that really bothered Mark, and he struggled greatly trying to assess, well, is this a problem? Is it a, is it a minor problem? Is it a systemic problem? Is it occurring just in Florida in his location? Is it going on in New York, or is it going in, on in California? So he had come to us, uh, and he asked us to help him try to understand the scope of it and what his options um, were. In addition uh, to that uh, inducement problem that he identified, he was also concerned with um, the pricing of uh, the drugs that were uh, that he was personally um, responsible for in terms of filling prescriptions. And the basic issue was that uh, Walgreens at that point in time had a certain program. It's called the Prescription Savings Card. And this is a, a, a or PSC. And so this program was designed to give reduced pricing on uh, thousands of drugs. And what concerned Mark about that was that um, when you offer um, uh, that lower price in a re deeply reduced PSC program, his worry was that the government, federal government, state government, who also pays for some of those prescriptions, wasn't getting the benefit of that lower price. And so he brought that to us along with the inducement issue and we spent a long time trying to assess whether these were real serious problems and the scope of it and concluded ultimately that uh, he thought uh, this was worth uh, bringing not only to the attention of the company, and he did, but also uh, subsequently uh, he brought his own individual action under that law we talked about a few minutes ago called the False Claims Act in the Southern District of New York, a federal court uh, in New York City, Manhattan. And so that case was filed in early 2012. And one of the unique aspects of this type of law is you don't, um, it's filed under seal. And for those who don't practice law or perhaps have never been in litigation, that's an unusual procedure, meaning uh, not many cases are filed under seal, uh, which means they're not public, right? The underlying defendant in the case is not aware that the case has been filed. It's not served on the defendant. And that's actually a statutory requirement in the False Claim Act that you have to follow. The purpose of this sealing procedure is to make sure that the government has an opportunity to conduct kind of a stealth-like investigation without the 
the target or the defendant of the conduct knowing anything about it. And so uh, while his case was filed, it was under seal, uh, and uh, the government conducted an investigation. And ultimately, to bring us forward in time, two things occurred. Uh, in 2017, after a five-year investigation, uh, the government intervened in the case and settled his allegations along with Walgreens. And Walgreens paid $50 million to, um, to resolve the anti-kickback violations that were alleged. Um, now, a part of the case remained under seal, the pricing part of the case, until it was resolved fairly recently in which Walgreens settled a second part, that uh, $60 million settlement was for the PSC program that I described a few minutes ago. So, Andrew, one of the things that uh, I continually hear in the whistleblower space is that employees try to raise their hand internally. They try to speak up um, and that uh, sometimes they're not listened to. Sometimes they're actively discriminated or retaliated against or sometimes it's something else. Um, What was the situation in this case? Uh, He actively spoke up. Um, so he he particularly, and I, I can't get into the specific uh, facts or evidence, but I can assure you that uh, this was not a situation where his concerns weren't elevated through the appropriate channels uh, internal to Walgreens in order to make his concerns known. Um, and this, you know, I have a lot of whistleblowers that I represent. Uh, the vast majority of these whistleblowers are absolutely committed uh, to doing the right thing and to avail themselves of of their rights, which include uh, elevating uh, matters of serious concern, particularly if it involves falsity or fraud uh, through a compliance department in order to try to get that conduct uh, fixed before it it does blossom into uh, litigation. And so Marcus is no different than many, many, many of my other clients. Now, the the fact of the matter is that takes a tremendous amount of courage. It also takes a tremendous amount of um, uh, commitment uh, because, uh, you know, sometimes companies respond in a variety of different ways when you have a lower level employee or even a highest level employee who's raising concerns that perhaps interfere with ongoing business or portend to possibly uh, reduce the income. And so Mark was willing to take all of that risk. And, and hence, I come back to what I said at the beginning of this conversation, which, which is that we are, uh, we are always very delighted at my firm to represent whistleblowers who are courageous to take those types of risks. You, uh, you really hit upon a couple of things that I wanted to highlight. Um, uh, both for, for uh, Mark and for whistleblowers more generally, which is courage and perseverance. Um, my uh, research would indicate that you're correct, that um, 80 to 90 percent of all whistleblowers have reported internally and not been able to reach a satisfactory resolution. But more importantly, uh, when they come to someone like yourself, it is just as uh, daunting a process and that they have to maintain both the perseverance and courage through uh, the lawsuit process. Was that, is that your experience as well? 
It is. It is. The vast majority of my clients are trying to fix internally the problems. And for whatever reason, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a less than fulsome internal investigation uh, or in certain instances, uh, let's face it, uh, you know, a company makes a business decision. And sometimes the cost of doing business is that you have to get caught uh, and uh, and pay the fine. And so I have cases in which uh, this was clearly the fact pattern. Um, now, for anyone like Mark, um, they have to understand that that's the reason why uh, you have a, somewhat of a safety net in the False Claims Act, because among the provisions of the False Claims Act, uh, whistleblowers are afforded uh, protection against retaliation. Uh, and that's that's a significant uh, factor if you're trying to assess your options and your rights. Uh, sometimes this, so to speak, professional suicide of standing up and being counted. Um, so many times when you have these cases, uh, the fact pattern is similar in the sense that it's a it's a person who has done everything they really can to try to take uh, get the company or the appropriate uh, report within the company to take ownership of the issue. They do not, for whatever reason. Then they come to an attorney such as my, my law firm, and you have to then work them through um, this complicated analysis of, well, what is the next step of that? Is that the right move for you professionally? Um, is it the right move for you from the perspective of you know, vindicating that you are correct and that the company has done something wrong. Um, and more importantly, you in the False Claims Act context in particular, I mentioned to you the existence of this sealing procedure. So what that means is that a whistleblower who avails themselves of the rights under the False Claims Act uh, frequently, they have no option to discuss that lawsuit or their claims with anyone, right? You're not permitted to even mention the existence of a lawsuit that you are as a, an employee slash whistleblower engaged in. Um, and that means that the relationship that you choose with your attorney is very important because they're the only ones you can talk to. And they, were, they will be the ones that will get you through those rough patches while you're under a seal. So... Andrew, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted additional information on yourself or the firm, uh, where can they go? So uh, happily uh, can willing to talk to anyone uh, that might have issues that, um, that bear on these types of subjects. My law firm is in Washington, D.C. here, just a few blocks uh, to the north of the White House. Uh, they can look us up on our website, uh, www. Stein, S-T-E-I-N, Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L.com. And, of course, if they have a particular whistleblower matter that they want to talk to uh, someone about, uh, my website will have my contact information, and I'd be more than happy to work them through the issues. Well, Andrew, uh, congratulations on a a great result. Uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the intro, I'm uh, looking for new podcasts, 
If you're interested in a podcast, producing your own podcast, and having a place to put it on the Compliance Podcast Network, please give me a shout. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.